Good afternoon. Thank you for coming, and um, welcome to LSE for this conversation about technology in the future of the author. My name's Tom Chatfield. Um, I was, until recently, in fact, the Arts and Books Editor at Prospect Magazine. Um, I, I'm now writing full-time about technological things um, and thinking about those. But um, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, an expert panel here to have what I think will be a fairly, fairly wide-ranging debate about both the ways in which authorship, notions of authorship and reading, um, and the culture around sort of books and writing are being changed, but also, I suppose more specifically, about what will last and what won't last and you know, the way copyright and new production technologies might be quite fundamentally transforming how we approach old texts and how we write new texts. Um, in terms of the format, we're going to have a sort of brief five minutes or so of opening statements from, from our panelists to introduce the ideas and then I'm going to chair a fairly free-flowing discussion on the panel for half an hour or so and then we'll throw it open for about half an hour questions from the floor. Um, I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions and I'd encourage you to scribble down anything really you think is interesting and throw it back at us when we've finished chatting amongst ourselves and then we'll round up with a few closing thoughts uh, from the panel. And from left to right I will our speakers. On the left we have uh, the philosopher and writer Nigel Warburton, who is uh, author of many books on philosophy and a professor at the Open University, um, but equally at home in new media, I think very well known for his tremendously successful podcast, which he runs with David Edmonds, called Philosophy Bites, which has interviewed many of the world's, or most, I think, of the world's leading philosophers and thinkers. Nigel was recently identified as one of the 100 most influential tweeters in the UK, so he has, um, I think, a lot to say about <coughs> the ways in which new and old media and new, new and old writing are interacting. And immediately to my left, the, uh, the writer Sam Leith, who was worked in and around newspapers for many years as, as the um, literary editor of the Daily Telegraph, um, among other things, and is now a full-time writer. He's the author of, um, of several books of, of non-fiction, and I think um, in a couple of months has his first novel coming up from Bloomsbury, The Coincidence Engine. And Sam writes for Prospect and is uh, a widely published columnist and writer. And on my right, uh, I have the, the author Lionel Shriver, who uh, probably needs very little introduction <laughs> to, to most of you, um, but who is the, the best-selling author of, well, a large number of extremely admired books. Um, most recently... You can't think of one. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm trying to get them. Is it so much for that as the most recent? Is that, is that yes. right? Yes, most recently so much for that. Um, and... Um, been translated around the world and has been, I think, at the top of the, the writing profession for, for many years, um, as well as being a, a widely published newspaper economist, and will have, I think, a lot to offer on the transition from, from her perspective and from the perspective of, of a leading writer. And um, in terms of order, I was going to invite Sam to start us off with his, th his thoughts, and then we'll move on to Nigel, and we'll end up with Lionel before, before discussing a bit. So, Thank you, Tom. Um, my thoughts, good o. Um, I, I mean, I'm at a slight disadvantage here because Lionel um, knows a very great deal more about authorship than I do, and Tom knows a very great deal more about digital technology, and I think it's safe to say Nigel knows more about both. Um, so I'll try and be quick. Um, but in terms of how to start with sort of my, my own foray into authorship, my first novel comes out, as Tom said, imminently, and a strange thing happened to me last week, which is I got an email from my publisher out of the blue saying... Um, we'd just like you to okay this script for a trailer. And I said, as I think 
you know, we young people on the internet say, OMFG, um, a what? And they said, oh, trailer, you know, put, put a trailer on YouTube. And further, they were talking about how, oh, for the digital edition, we'll need you to think of other stuff, you know, what, what songs you were listening to when you wrote this novel, and, um, you know, any other books you like, and paintings that might be relevant to the novel that we can kind of bung into the digital edition. And all of this, I think, was, you know, sort of pretty alien to the experience of most people writing continuous prose fiction in the past, um, and yet is now a kind of standard, standard thing. And this is, you know, the, the sort of business of marketing novels and marketing all sorts of forms of books has become much more multimedia. You're expected as an author to Twitter and blog and all the rest of it. And in terms of your chances of writing your next book, um, they're substantially damaged by the likelihood that you're going to spend maybe three or four hours a day you know, checking your Amazon ranking, seeing whether anyone's logged onto your blog, um, Googling your own name, um, Twitter searching the title of your book, and you know, responding to app replies saying, I read your book, it's rubbish, I hate you, um, which is you know, dispiriting. And, um, but all of that, it seems to me, though there's a great hoo-ha made about it, that's got to do with the way books are sold and marketed, and it has to do with the way authors spend their time, probably. But it doesn't have, it seems to me, a very substantial impact on the form, on the business of you know, the central object that's trying to be sold, which is this continuous length of prose. And I think the sort of first thing, really, that needs to be said in talking about books and new technology is that we shouldn't overclaim. We shouldn't, I think, be seduced by, wow, I've got a video embedded in my novel, into thinking that these are you know, that something fundamentally different is going on. I mean, I think continuous prose, narrative put across that way, continues to be, you know, a viable form. And though there are very interesting things being done in hypertextual fiction, in, you know, in doing things with links, in doing things with, you know, embedded media, and in social reading, these still... Are, I mean, I think they're marginal. They're probably not going to be the mainstream. I mean, and a lot of them are recapitulating things that we've already got. You know, you can put a picture in a book, you know, tell Arthur Rackham. And hypertext, in a lot of ways, hypertext links are very, very closely allied to what you'd find in, you know, footnotes or bibliographies. You know, you can worm through from text to text to text, and you can do it faster now. But things haven't changed profoundly in that way. Likewise, to come to another point that's made about digital media, people talk about the democratization of writing, and that from two ends, actually. In the first case, that it's much easier to publish now. You know, you can, you can self-publish very cheaply and effectively. You can self-publicize very cheaply and effectively. The sort of barriers to entry are much lower. And likewise, criticism has been, as it were, democratized. You know, book bloggers have more or less overtaken in a lot of ways, you know, traditional print critics or academic critics. And what I'd say about that, I think, is that the idea that there is a sort of professional writer and a professional critic, these actually are the novelties, these are the historical blips. Literary criticism, since the you know, beginning of the 20th century, 
has been a subject struggling to find a professional footing, which I think is, is what a lot of literary theory, um, the huge tide of literary theory that ran through the centre of the 20th century, sort of has to do with, actually. It's, you know, what are we actually doing here? How is this a, how is this a proper job? Um, likewise, criticism. You know, newspaper critics, people say, oh, the professional newspaper reviewer. Most of the professional newspaper reviewers are simply people who happen to make a living from writing about books. They're useless arts graduates like myself, um, rather than people with a sort of professional qualification. Many bloggers are just as well qualified as anybody who writes a book review in a newspaper. So, you know, actually what's being done here is, is a return to the status quo ante, I think, rather than necessarily a huge, you know, it's, it's, the professionalism of the industry is a, is a sort of straw man. I think the profoundest change that digital media have brought about for authorship is basically to do with intellectual property, and it's to do with the massive reproducibility of texts cheaply, um, and to do with the, you know, the effects on that of piracy. I mean, start with you know, a statistic I found, thank you, Google. Um, in 2010, electronic books were 8.3% of the US trade market. Um, and that's, that's big. It's not huge, but it's substantial. But it was 3.2% just the previous year. So if you look at the shape of the curve, I think it's absolutely you know, ungainsayable that these things are here to stay and that they're going to become bigger and bigger. And I think the, the gap to entry, I mean, has always been that the paperback is an extremely effective technology. And for a long time, you know, you could read a book on a computer in 1988. You know, you just load it up on your VIC-20. But you couldn't take your VIC-20 anywhere. You had to plug it in. Um, the screen gave you a headache. It was hopeless. I mean, the, the technology was there. It's the usability of the technology. And until very, very recently, basically the last iteration of Kindle and iPad, you really, unless you were a publisher and didn't want to carry around a lot of manuscripts, you didn't want to be reading on an electronic device. Now you can and you do. And so the effect of this is um, what Chris Anderson's book says, um, the near zero marginal cost of distributing books, which basically means you can ping these books out all over the place very, very, very cheaply. They're infinitely reproducible. And this is the real bugger for writers. Um, because if you want to make money or a living writing a book, there has to be a way around this. And I don't know exactly what it is. Um, but Chris Anderson, you know, the Wired editor who wrote a book about free, um, the idea of, you know, that everything was going to be free in the future thanks to the internet. Um, his idea is that you can make this money, you can make your money off the book, like, if you're Radiohead, it doesn't matter if your album is pirated, because you can, you know, use it as publicity for a concert tour. And if you're Chris Anderson, you use it as publicity for a lecture tour. But if you're a poet, you're probably not going to make a fortune giving a lecture tour to you know, businesses, as Chris Anderson is. So there is, a, there is a problem here, and there's a huge question about how authorship proceeds and how the publishing industry proceeds. And I think that basically is pretty much the, is the big problem, and I think that's the big question on the table, is how you know, digital media allows writing and publishing and reading to be an activity that's valuable and that's rewarded. And if anyone has any answers, I'd love to hear them. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. Um, Nigel. 
Yeah, just picking up on that last point, actually, I couldn't resist this. The, um, the idea that poets might make money from copyright is um, really interesting because there are only about three or four in the country that can do that, one of whom is Wendy Cope, who complains um, very loudly about people pirating her work. Uh, what poets have traditionally done is get jobs in universities, which they can still do. So I think they're probably well advised to promote their work on the internet to enhance their chances of, of getting prestigious um, poetry chairs and so on. I want to do three things in the next five minutes or so. I'm going to make a confession, uh, which I hope is revealing in some ways, talk a little bit about publishing and the changing nature of publishing, and also present what I see as the writer's dilemma. So the confession. Um, this morning I, I spent some time on a porn site on the internet, um, which I thoroughly recommend, um, which is called Bookshelf Porn, www.bookshelfporn.com. And what it is, is just a series of photographs of bookshelves in libraries. And it's completely compelling. For anybody who has spent their youth in libraries, who's been around books, who's a writer, an academic, I challenge you to look at that site and not feel some kind of emotional draw to the, some of the spaces that you can see in the way the light's falling on books, piles of books in different ways, different shapes, a bookshelf, libraries and so on. It's absolutely emotionally um, laden for anybody in the world of books. And I think, I suspect, looking around, most of you will be in that world and most of you will have been brought up with physical books. And what we mustn't lose sight of is how irreplaceable the physicality of books is in the internet world, that what we're seeing with e-books is not a physical thing. We see readers. But not just the, the content of books is important, but actually what they look and feel like. Um, and that's something that we're probably going to lose some of in the next decade or so. But also, already there are the signs that there's a kind of fetishization of the physical object, the book. So Cory Doctorow, who's a science fiction writer who's been very um, clever in the way he's used the internet, giving away free books, um, free e-books, his latest book, with a little help, I think it's called With a Little Help, um, he gives it away in about 12 ebook formats on his website. It allows you to buy from lulu.com or via lulu.com various paperback editions at quite a low price. Or you can buy this absolutely beautiful handmade hardback which contains some unique object within it, bound into it, which is like a, a, a signature or a bit of paper which with some notes on that belongs to one of the contributors, came from one of the contributors to the book. I think it's, selling, it's $275, I think it's selling for. And he's gone straight into profit within, within a couple of months of, of op operating that system, even though he's giving away precisely the same intellectual content on the internet. It's the physical thing which, which is still allowing him to, to um, thrive as a writer. But it's also a fetish object. It's, there's a sense in which it's possible that the internet will make us more sensitive to the smell of real books, to the touch of books, and what we're losing. So that's the first thing. I don't, I don't think we should lose sight of that and think that because you can ping a, an e-book around the world and, and, and press a button and, and reproduce it, that that is all that a book is for people alive, born in the last... Um, well, born more than 20 years ago. But 
my children's generation are not going to feel the same way about physical books, that's clear already. So I think we should also be aware that many of us as writers and academics and so on have a nostalgia for something that is going to be lost and that nostalgia is probably about a, a nostalgia for our childhoods, the, what, the things that made us into writers, which were probably public libraries which were also going. The set, my second point is about publishing, the way publishing is changing. Traditionally, the writer has been important, essential, you might say, to publishing, but not highly valued in the sense of remuneration and control of processes. And that was quite reasonable, I think, because to make physical books, the things I've just been talking about, requires very skillful people, both skilled in business, but skilled in marketing, skilled in book design, and so on. Now, that's all changing because it's now possible on my laptop to publish an EPUB version of one of my books. I can create a book, put it out into the internet myself, I can use PayPal, I can actually set up as a bookshop, an author, bookshop, marketer, everything that a publisher can do. And it's going to be interesting to see how publishers manoeuvre in, in the coming years to, to show authors that they can do more than what an author can do. So what I think has happened is that a kind of empowering of the author that many authors don't quite realise yet. Because if, if publishers continue to offer us um, poor ebook terms, there's no incentive to go with them apart from the kudos that a particular publisher could bring to you. And I think for established writers, they already have that kudos. Why would they need a publisher to, to, get, to add to that kudos? If Philip Pullman wants to publish a book on the internet, which I'm sure he doesn't, um, it would sell, for sure. He doesn't need his publisher to promote it. Now, what I see as a major problem for writers is, is the writer's dilemma. There are two ways to go, and there are strong <coughs> arguments on both sides. One way to go is the way that Lawrence Lessig would have us go, which is the path of openness, that ideas should be free. We should, the history of writing is a history of mashing things up, of cutting and pasting, of borrowing and stealing. You know, Eliot famously talked about that. Um, so surely we should get beyond these old copyright laws that we have that lock down content. We have the mechanism with the internet and the digital revolution to spread ideas around the world. How perverse that, we're, that we've still got these ancient laws that, that prevent people from using other people's words. And that's attractive in some ways. I mean, the idea that we could have Google Books has the entire um, published output of the world available to us. That would be fascinating at the moment. It's obviously only works that are out of copyright that are available, though they've scanned many other books. If we could just open that up, wouldn't the world be better? So that's a utopian vision. That's the open world. The world that, where people talk about enabling creativity. The other, in some ways equally attractive, option for a writer is I won't call it the closed world because that, that's got bad connotations it's, it's about protecting creativity so we as writers devote years to writing a book often and we need some means of livelihood you can't just take my book and do anything you like with it because that cuts off my income streams, therefore you know, we've got this compromise that exists in copyright, which is a compromise between the needs of the readers and users, who are also writers some, often, um, and the needs of the authors to survive. And the claim is that without that protection that copyright 
provides, you lose this balance which allows new ideas to emerge because nobody's got the incentive to write anymore. How can I devote two or three years to writing a book if there's no chance of a payoff? So that's the dilemma. Um, I'm not going to resolve it now. I think it should be resolved in discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nigel. Um, and finally, Lionel. Thank you. I talked to the head of electronic publishing at uh, HarperCollins yesterday, and uh, he tells me that while their e-books are currently about 5% of sales, he expects that by 2014 it could be 30 to 40% of sales. It's going that fast. Um, and so the first thing I've got to say is that it doesn't matter <coughs> what I've got to say, because <laughs> it's going to happen anyway. Um, I try to be optimistic about the growth of digital sales. I may be also uh, sentimentally attached to physical books, uh, but uh, I, I gather that as a consequence of Kindles and iPads, people are actually reading more books than they used to, and um, because we've managed to associate books with, uh, with these new devices, fiction, like what I write, now seems hip. And that's important. Uh, I see all kinds of advantages. Obviously, uh, e-books don't take up uh, very much space in your uh, flat or house. And uh, I mean, I recently moved house. And half the load was books, right? And it was exhausting. And then it, it took days to alphabetize my library. <laughs> I, on, a, on a Kindle, I could do it with, with a button in seconds. So I think there are a lot of great things about uh, e-books. And the best thing so far is that uh, we are successfully training readers to continue to pay for content. Now, how much they pay for content is still up for grabs. But so far, we haven't uh, gone down the route of the music industry, and young people are just accustomed to getting all kinds of books for free. Uh, and that's the most optimistic thing that's, that's happened in the last couple of years. Uh, you may have be familiar with what they're doing for World Book Day on the 5th of March that they're uh, giving away a million books uh, in order to talk up reading. And I actually think this is wrong-headed. They discovered this in Africa a long time ago, that if you gave condoms away for free, nobody used them. You have to charge a little bit. People uh, don't value things that are free. So giving away a million books is actually bad news. Uh, now, there are obviously some downsides to this digital revolution. One of my biggest concerns, of course, is the loss of the bookstore. Uh, especially independent bookstores are not going to be able to survive if we get most of our books from uh, Amazon.com. And uh, it was small news over here, but it was big news in the States that uh, even a chain like Borders just went bankrupt in the U.S. Uh, if even the chains can't keep alive in this environment, uh, nobody has a prayer 
of lasting on the high street. Now, again, that is to a degree a, a sentimental attachment. I like bookstores. Uh, I enjoy browsing in them. Uh, but there are other ways to browse, and as long as you can still get physical books online, that is another of my old world sentimental attachments. There is obviously concern about, um, personal concern about downward pressure on authors' advances because uh, if that price point fixes too low, uh, then you're not publishers are not going to be able to pay authors very much money. I mean, content is not free. Uh, selling ebooks is not free. The amount that it costs of, uh, to bring a book to market, oh, I've seen various figures, but the printing and distribution is somewhere between 7 and 15 percent. And the amount that the public expects to, a, a book to be discounted when it's in an electronic format is much more drastic than that. <coughs> so we're at war on that. Um, Ultimately, of course, and this is, this is something that Nigel touched on, the publisher is theoretically irrelevant. Uh, we now have a model that the publisher can be eliminated altogether. Now, any of you who have been rejected by traditional publishers might find that a gleeful prospect. Um, so, and uh, there was a time in my life that I would have rather fancied it myself. Uh, and now, of course, I have a vested interest in the old model. I have a vested interest in the old model on a couple of levels. Uh, that is, as both a, an author and as a reader. There's something to be said for having uh, a, a, vetting a cultural vetting mechanism. In other words, there's something to be said for having an actual culture, which involves institutions for which we have regard. The biggest moment in a, a novelist's life has to be that point at which you found out that your first novel was accepted for publication by a traditional publisher, or at least in, in my lifetime, that's always been the case. I mean, when I found out uh, that my first novel had been accepted, I cried. Uh, likewise, even in, in traditional uh, newspaper publishing, uh, the first time I sold an op-ed to the New York Times, which was you know my my paper, I danced up and down the hall. I was so happy. Those are moments that I would wish for subsequent generations, and I worry that if we get into this egalitarian free-for-all where anybody can put their work on the web, uh, everything is free, uh, that, that you, don't, you don't have those opportunities to be recognized, to be chosen, to be elevated, which encourages people to do better uh, and more important work. And I just think emotionally, that would be a big loss for generations coming up behind me not to have that experience of finally being accepted by their own culture. I also am concerned on the level of simply being a reader that I don't want to have to negotiate a morass of uh, undifferentiated texts in choosing what to read. 
And in that way, publishers do me a favor as a reader in uh, going through the slush pile, if you will. I don't want to drown myself as a reader in the slush pile. Um, so I would, I, I would hate to have to depend on um, the kind of popular uh, voting that goes on, say, on Amazon.com, so that the only way to tell what books are any good are the ones that are, are, are the most popular. And uh, if I look at the average bestseller list, I know that I don't always want to read the books that are most popular. Um, I think the vote's still out on what electronic publishing is going to do uh, to authors uh, and to publishers. But the, the real problem, as I see it, is that uh, traditional publishers are being squeezed on, bo on both ends. Uh, it would be one thing if all we had to deal with was electronic publishing, and I think that, that uh, publishers would be able to adapt. But what's been going on for some years now on the drastic discounting of books by the likes of Tesco or W.H. Smith, uh, is it means that publishers are getting squeezed on both ends. Uh, I had the weird experience of getting in touch with my UK agent recently and saying, well, you know, my sixth novel, uh, Double Fault, I, I got a, a little royalty check back in uh, 2007. Uh, I haven't seen one since, and, and, but I've been signing that book at any number of events. I know it must be selling a few copies. You know, I'd expect, you know, 50p to come down the pipeline eventually. <laughs> um, and no, I was informed that I was the victim of what are called retros. And retros involve a chain, changing the price of your book after you've sold it. Can you get your head around that? You've sold it for one price, and they lower the price. So that essentially my, my little royalties were taken back. And, you know, I'm afraid they're going to show up at the door. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> um, and this kind of predatory pricing has been uh, making publishing uh, almost unprofitable for some time now. And that's where my concern is, is, is these two things going on at once. Oh, thank you very much. And um, I think I'd like to, to start the questions for the panel with, with something that everyone's touched on a bit, which has two aspects, really, which is this, this physicality. And it always seems to me that all of us, I think, have, on the panel here, and I would imagine most of the audience, have a sentimental relationship with certain books and with certain ideas about books, and that's very powerful. But it seems to me sometimes that can overshadow a debate about trying to nail what, if anything, is actually different in the experience of reading, say, the same piece of text on a screen as opposed to, say, through a Kindle, as opposed to reading it on paper. Is one thing I would say that strikes me is that when I'm reading a book on my iPad, say, I observe that the text is coming at me on the same screen as my email and my videos and my web browser. So in one sense, in terms of context, it's in a kind of competition with those. It's in almost a direct subliminal competition with whether I want to tweet or not. And I, I wonder about this. Um, and I, I would like, I suppose, to sort of just 
ask first if putting aside the sentiment you feel there's sort of just something different about the text I don't know Lana would you like to, uh, to talk to that one first or I can't speak to it exactly because I don't own a Kindle or an iPad so I don't read fiction the only fiction I read on a screen is my own uh, uh, and all I can contribute in, in that regard is the odd fact that when uh, I'm reading my work on screen, I'm less critical of it. And if I print it out, I see all kinds of waffle. <laughs> and I don't understand that. I've never understood that. It reminds me of, of sorry, I'm not going to do much talking here. But and so then. maybe I should get all of you to read my books on screen. <laughs> obviously better. But it seems, I, think it was, I think it was Roald Dahl. I can't remember someone else said that the disease of word processing is that if someone's writing something out by hand, he felt, you could kind of tell if it was any good or not. But in word processing, people get to polish a bad piece of writing so that you can't tell it's no good unless you have a really, really sharp eye. It's a slightly different point. Um, Sam, do you want to...? I'd say, yeah, I, I think it is a very good question as to whether reading on the screen is profoundly different. And, as you say, reading on the same device in which you've got um, what, again, to quote Cory Doctorow, described the internet as an ecosystem of interruption technologies, which I think is a rather brilliant phrase. Um, I think the, ex for me, the experience of reading on the screen isn't profoundly different in the same way that, I mean, I'd say that the world is an ecosystem of interruption technologies. Um, if I'm sitting reading a book at home, which I spend an awful lot of time doing, my, a lot of my living is writing book reviews and reading books. Um, I, I will be interrupted by the telephone, by the radio in the background, by the thought that maybe I should go and make another cup of coffee, by my 18-month-old daughter screaming, by this, that, and the other. I mean, I think it's... I think the difference between reading a paperback in the world and reading a book on an iPad is not as profound as the fact that the interruptions are on the same device. Um, because I think the experience of reading, you know, if we've got a sort of cognitive neuroscientist in the audience they'd probably be able to you know, tell us something very interesting about it but intuitively I think you don't notice profoundly say whether you're reading in Garamond or in Palatino I mean you'd probably notice if you're reading Comic Sans and you'd be absolutely infuriated but um, for the most part when you're reading text and you're immersed in text I mean that's one of the bizarre qualities of it you kind of look through the book you don't you don't constantly notice the materiality of the book when you're reading. And it seems to me one of the least disruptive things about digital, the experience of reading digitally, um, that it's different. You know, sorry, the, the experience, one of the least different things about it is the reading experience. Um, and when I said the latest readers more or less have it nailed, um, I'm going to say it's precisely in that respect. I mean, I thought that, that when the Sony e-reader was launched, which I... I got an early copy because I was asked to review it for my newspaper. The thing that I noticed was that the page turns were f one micro nano fraction of a second too slow. You noticed every time you turned a page because you were waiting. And that that was you know what made it impossible to read on for me. Now the new Kindle you can read, I think once you're reading a book and you're into it, you don't notice the difference. I don't know whether your experience is the same. I would say that the it's not just one experience of reading on screen because the, the difference between a Kindle and an iPad is profound. The, you know, the light is coming at you from the iPad, Kindle it's coming from somewhere else, so it's a completely different experience. So the Kindle is much closer to a traditional book, and actually I believe the audience is much closer to the traditional book audience as well, the people who, who adopted it. Um, so that's the first thing, I don't think it's... Um, 
screen or book. Then, but also, even amongst books, it's be hard to immerse yourself in the Lindisfarne Gospels, for instance. You know, you're aware of the, the way that that's been created as a book, whereas other books are designed for you to be immersed in them. Um, not every book is intended as transparent to the, to the idea. Fair so fair I think we should be... With a, with, I was talking about the fetishization of books. I think we, we should be ready to see books which it's harder to lose yourself in, in the sense that you're aware of the design, then you might get aesthetic pleasures in a different sort of way. I could imagine poetry books, one-off beautiful poetry books being created because you can get the poems free on the internet. Thank you, Nigel. I mean, it's interesting, actually, I just one thing Sam's said about the type reminded me, uh, again, of another comment that I think was made by someone of the Times who, who said, uh, with a very sad face, um, that typographically speaking, digital reading had, had sent us back 500 years to an era of kind of, of no love given to fonts so to speak, that stuff is just in fonts and, and all the wonderful, wonderful labours of publishers in, in, in developing beautiful, very considered ways of presenting text on page had rather been lost with customizable text that you can just blow up to vast size. But I suppose I, following on from that and also some of the other things that were mentioned, obviously the economics of digital books is, is very, very different to, to the economics of conventional publishing. Um, Nigel, you summed up very nicely. You have the the twin options or twin extremes of the sort of Lancelotic open and the the idea of protecting people. But I suppose at the same time, the it seems that authors' relationships with texts um, are not the only thing that changes. That as a reader as well, if I have a digital book, I don't necessarily own it or buy it in the same way as I do a physical book, it would be very hard for me to lend you stuff um, on, my, on my Kindle. It, it, you have a different kind of ownership. And I almost wonder whether we're moving towards seeing books as, as a service rather than a product. It's almost sort of something that you get thanks to the largesse of the person that owns the thing you're reading it on, rather than me, I have a book that I carry around. I thought Kindle had just introduced a scheme where you can borrow a book. Yeah, they have. Yeah. 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 So, in a sense, they're looking for analogues of, of um, what we would do with a physical book. Yeah. Yes, I think also Enhanced Editions does that as well, the idea that you can lend you up to five copies of this book you own, and I think it will go on someone else's reader for a certain length of time and then sort of lip off. Yeah. So there was the case when, I think 1984 was, was momentarily deleted off Kindle or something like that. Mm. Maybe I'm misremembering that one. Yeah, no, it was. It was, it was um, redacted. Well, focusing on the economic side, I suppose there's, an, there's another... Tension. I don't know if I, I sort of asked Lyle about this one first. In that, on the one hand, we've got this incredible, this free-for-all, this, um, this, this almost this morass, as we said, and that makes it very, very hard to differentiate. But it almost seems that one facet of that is that, faced by this, the top gets heavier than ever, that when I'm trying to choose between 10 million options, suddenly there's all the more advantage to you know, the, the, the 10 people who sell very well, that, paradoxically speaking, this gives a small number of people an even greater advantage than ever before, rather than necessarily empowering the many. Yes, and a lot of them are the same people who were advantaged mm. in print, right? Yeah. So this phenomenon has also been going on a long time in publishing, and most publishers have a few authors that sell a lot of copies, and they've been subsidizing the, the people who don't sell anything. And this has been going on forever, but 
you would like to think in the perfect world that maybe electronic publishing would be uh, readjusting that a little bit and it seems to be just making it worse um, because the, it's so, so easy to go viral, mm. right? But on the other hand, minority interests can be, you can locate the people who are as weird as you quite easily on the internet. Mm. And so you can find that piece about, I don't know, um, Pangborn or whatever that very narrow um, topic that you're interested in is. You can find that book that somebody wrote about the, the railway system in the north of Scotland or something like that. So I think it doesn't necessarily mean that um, the long-tail authors get lost. I think they're more likely to be found by the people who are looking for them. Uh, also, I think um, something Lionel mentioned earlier about cultural vetting. Obviously, publishers act as, as these um, gatekeepers. So some of them, because they buy other publishing companies with inferior lists, which they feel have an obligation to keep selling, dilute their cultural authority quite a lot. Um, but there are equivalents of cultural vetting on the internet. And some of them are, are, are quite firmly established, and some of them establish themselves by their authority. So there are people who gain authority because people respect their critical choice and they tell people very openly which books and which films and which um, Though that software indicates they a, a desire for that authority, right? Well, it may do in their, in their case. Like a, a, a need in, in the larger readership for that kind of authority. Yes, but I'm saying that, that if I respect... A, in my... In my um, subject of philosophy, if a respected philosopher that I know has a website and, and he or she is saying, this is the book you have to read in this area and this is why, that has tremendous authority and is a direct route through that to Amazon or wherever I want to get the book. That, that is doing a lot of what the publisher would have done, whether or not the book was conventionally published. So people yeah. will go out and find, find the authorities that they need because there's still a need for them. And there are more established institutional authorities who will give you their preferred reading list. I mean, that's working at the level, if you, if you apply to Oxford University to do a particular subject, they give you a reading list that you ought to read before you come up for interview, and that's a kind of authority, and they could just as easily include things which weren't published conventionally as books which were. So, so that can act in the same sort of way. So you have a, an established institution saying, these are the things that we think are really good. Now, actually, they're probably the very same people who would be, or some of them, making those decisions as would be deciding on the publication of Oxford University Press because of the way it's run, or of any other university press. And so those same people can act in a culturally vetting um, way online. I mean, that does happen. So it's, not, it's nothing about the medium that prevents it. And I think that's evolving, certainly. Sam, do you have anything um, No, I think I'm, I'm, I'm more or less in agreement, I think, with... I mean, I'm, I'm in agreement with Lionel as far as it's all, if you like, about search filters, one way or another, and the internet is, is in a lot of ways, as Nigel suggests, throwing up much more... I mean, it's, 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 it's throwing up much less top-down search filters, if you like, um, but you know, you you curate your own kind of personal stable of critics almost in your you know who you follow on Twitter, which blogs you read. Which I mean, there's absolutely no reason that you know James Wood would be a less important if you think James Wood's an important critic if he was only posting online. Um, he probably would have found it harder to establish his reputation the way he has. But you know, these 
these technologies are young. Um, I'm sure by the time, you know, I mean, you know, in a sense, what you're seeing on the internet is, is you know, people reinventing magazines and broadsides. Um, and it's taken a while for some magazines to turn into Times and some magazines to become defunct, and that's, you know, that's all still going on. So I think the same psychological and cultural mechanisms are, are in evidence there. I think if we're talking um, about change, one of the questions that gets asked and wondered about a lot is, is, is this a good time to be a new author, to be, to be trying to sort of make your way? And I, I'd like to ask that with, with a sort of a slight variation, um, I guess, it's saying, is it, not just is it a good time to be trying to start out as an author, but which kind of authors might it or might not it be a good time for? Because I presume the way things are at the moment could be great to the benefit of some people trying to achieve some things, but to the detriment of other people. Um, do you think? Well, uh, would-be authors have always achieved uh, some things at, to the detriment of others? I mean, it's a competitive world out there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in that there are still uh, traditional publishers out there, they have not all gone bankrupt. Uh, it's not necessarily a whole lot worse than it ever was. It's always been difficult to get published. You have this additional route of putting your work online if you wish to, for nothing. You have a lot of competition, uh, but that is, you know, there's no reason not to view that as an opportunity. Um, so I don't think it is yet a terrible time to be uh, an up-and-coming author, but I think it could be if traditional publishers do go down, uh, bookstores do go down, and all we have is, is the web, and it's just very difficult to get yourself noticed. On the way here, I came down Charing Cross Road, which when I was a kid was, is there, maybe I've fantasized this, but I was sure it was just bookshops when I was a kid. And um, I noticed that a shop which used to be a specialist crime bookshop five years ago is now a shoe shop called Author. <laughs> <laughs> and in the window they've got an old typewriter and some conventional old books. And I thought that's, there's a sign there, some, some kind of sign about the way things are going. And maybe... In 10 years, the whole of Charing Cross Road will be shoe shops called The Author, The Writer, and so on, with a kind of nostalgia about... Death of the Author. Yeah, Death of the Author. I <laughs> don't know what they'd sell. Um, so that's one aspect of being an author, that it's something which, people, which currently has a kind of cachet. You know, it'll sell shoes somehow. Calling a shop author sells shoes. It's, got, you know, it's important culturally. Um, and it's got good connotations. So... To that extent, that nothing's changed. I think authors, the idea of being a writer is something that attracts a lot of people. And I would say the technology, not just at the level of the internet, but just you know, people are sitting around with laptops that can do fantastic things for, in terms of writing, in terms of producing copy. You, you know, people, my, my um, nine-year-old son last night started to teach himself to touch type on a free BBC Website and it almost got it in, in a few hours. The facility to be able to communicate your ideas in written form using computers is fantastic. It's a really exciting time for authors. You're liberated from place because you don't have to lug a big typewriter around. You, you have the opportunity to publish online, to communicate with other authors, to learn from other authors as well. I think it's 
But in terms of making money, that's the tough bit. So some writers starting out think they just want readers, but they very soon learn that they want money as well. And that's a really difficult thing. To earn a living wage as a writer without having some alternative source of income is tough. I mean, it's something worthy of great admiration, whatever kind of writer they are. Somebody who, by the power of their intellect and and a typewriter or a laptop, earns a living wage, has achieved something, I I think, and, and it's getting tougher, I would say. So, well, I think I, I think that's certainly certainly true. At least, if freelance rates for the newspapers is anything to go by, um, but I, I mean, I think we're in a state of you know um, to adapt to, and I, it's too early to tell. Um, I mean, I'm very attracted by the long tail argument. I mean, I don't think the long tail necessarily you know makes people a lot of money, but it's absolutely Nigel's absolutely right that if you are trying to find the person who's written this obscure little monograph on this, that or the other, some, you know, you're, you're obsessed with some particular sort of dolphin-shaped Ned Suke. someone's written a book on it and you'll find them in a way that you would never be able to beforehand. Um, but equally, at the other end of the scale, there's this argument that there are these, you know, some people always sell, why on earth should Philip Pullman need his publisher? And I think that also is a compelling argument, but it ignores the fact that the people who are at the moment at this stage of you know the Stephen Kings, the Philip Pullmans, have arrived there. That's still a generation that's arrived there through the old publishing route, and we don't know what it's going to look. You know, is there going to be a successor generation that comes up by doing what Cory Doctorow has done, or isn't there? I mean, we you know we still don't know how that's going to work out. I and mean, I think what seems at the moment we're in the situation. I think one of the other great cliches of the internet, the squeezed middle. I think there's a you know there's the sort of hobbyist long tail stuff where you can find special interest, you can publish into niches, you can do all these things. And then there's this massive thing, which is the way the publishers at the moment are consolidating themselves, which is, as you know, Lionel knows, deeper and deeper bulk discounts, you know, shearing off mid-list authors in order to, you know, who used to be subsidised by the big sellers, in order to continue to try and make their bottom line work out of what they can make, the dwindling revenues they can make from even those big sellers, because their margins are getting smaller. Um, so I think it's probably, you know, I think it really is going to be very hard to see what a middle-list author will look like in 20 years' time. At the moment, it's much harder for them, I think. I also think that uh, one, of the, one of the difficulties for uh, authors coming up, and it, it's even a difficulty for me, uh, is solitude. I think thinking and, and good writing tend to take place in a, in a state of quiet and and isolation, and maybe that's old-fashioned of me, but uh, all, the, uh, all the real research I've read on so-called multitasking is that it's all about doing a lot of things badly. I, and, and this solitude is hard to locate uh, on the generating end of text. It's also uh, not especially available once you've written it. And one of the things I've had to put a certain amount of resolution in is protecting myself from other people's opinions. They, uh, it's one thing to go through the traditional review process when you release a book. It's, it's hard enough, and, but at least uh, most professional critics observe a modicum of decency and civility. But if you go looking for it, 
you you can be insulted several thousand times a day on the web and I, I think this uh, is dangerous because it creates a an anxiety uh, even before you write the work what and this is especially the case with pieces of journalism or opinion pieces um, I had to forbid my husband from reading the blogs that ran after my column because he started saying when I was in the process of writing a piece he'd look over my shoulder and say you can't write that they'll say this you know and there's ultimately an in inhibiting element in this sense of the crowd being in your study already and uh, I don't read those blogs and I don't go looking for people's opinions of my work. I don't, I don't read the, uh, the, uh, the reader reviews on Amazon, all of that, because I don't, I, I, don't want, I don't want my feelings hurt. I don't want my confidence given a knock. And I don't even want to be uh, dependent on the compliments, right? That, the compliments alone can be a problem. So I think that operating in this new electronic uh, environment of uh, the cacophony of the masses is very difficult for people who are trying to put across views that everybody might not like. That's true of most views that are worth listening to. And, and you have to be brave and you sometimes, well, you don't necessarily have to go all Jonathan Franzen and um, put on the earmuffs and the, and the blinkers. But there's a way in which you, you do need sometimes to do that in relationship to the internet and don't go looking for trouble and try to create, at least for a little while, the illusion that you're alone in a room. Thank you. So I think Jonathan, I'm probably paraphrasing Jonathan Franson slightly wrong, but he said in an interview, I doubt that anyone with an internet connection in their office is writing anything worth reading, which is fairly dismissive of quite a lot of words. But there is this, I guess, this crowding out phenomenon that, that having a sense of audience, and we were talking about what will the next generation of authors look like, but you know, to some extent, part of the answer to that, I, I wonder, might be they might look like people who don't write books, for whom, who, are, who are trained in, you know, in dialogue, in, which can be you know, this enormously stimulating arena of constant dialogue with audience, and the idea of producing kind of static hunk of prose and then sending it out can seem very, very distant from the business of being in a constantly shifting discussion with the audience in your room. And I'll, I'll make this the last one between us and then I'll open it up to the audience if you, if you ever think about questions while we... Can I just come back on that? Yeah. Uh, it's different. If you're writing a novel, you're writing something. In my subject, philosophy, you know, it began, I believe, with Socrates having dialogues with people in the marketplace. And now... The technology is there for us to have recorded or live audio discussions that thousands of people can listen to, millions of people can listen to, contribute to. Eventually, they'll be searchable too. There's no, there's nothing to say that philosophy always has to be done on the printed page. So, it's possible the discussion and talk could replace a lot of the printed output of philosophy you know, that has come from the, the kind of. Um, industrialization of, of philosophy in academia, that a lot of that could not emerge as books, but as something else. Because Plato's kind of mistrust positive. writing. 
Well, Socrates did. Yeah. Plato, Plato recorded that, but Plato was a writer, so he had to record it in writing. Oh. So there's a slight sort of irony there that um, the only reason that we know about um, Socrates' view about writing is that Plato wrote it down. Socrates thought that the spoken word is the conversation is superior to the written word because the written word is inert; you can't answer back, you can't tailor it to the particular audience. It's prone to be misunderstood, and I would add, you lose all the sort of life and and um, wit, or not all of it. You can lose some of the wit, irony, those sorts of things work through tone of voice and intonation and delivery as much as from choice of words. So those things are really exciting as well. There could be new ways of doing some subjects. I'm not saying you'd be talking a novel, but um, certain kinds of audio drama could be amazingly um, invigorated by new technology rather than shut off by the closing down of radio uh, drama. I'm just going to say very quick, I think there's quite a difference. I mean, Cass Sunstein is one of the people who, who talks about the, the fundamental difference between talking to someone to their face and dialogue in the Socratic sense. And what, what he has described is the, the, the bare pit of anonymous comments when you get to say, say anything you like to anyone and there's these uh, two totally different phenomena, according to some people. Yeah, that's, well, that's fair. That's got to do with sort of position and context, and you know all all the things that very often online dialogue strips you of because um, you know you don't have what in in um, you know Aristotle says the ethos appeal. You can't your position on the internet is very often as you know anonymous. <laughs> um, you're anonymous. You're you are. You are the internet. Talk, you know, Lionel reads blogs underneath her column, and that's not a collection of people. Really, that comes across more. I mean, I've had the same experience. More like, ah, the internet is talking to me, and it hates me, um, which is, you know, maybe true of most of my friends. Um, but you, you're not. You don't have those those social inhibitors um, that that apply. I mean, I think what Nigel says is dead right, though, and we, we maybe we're focusing too narrowly on. You know, fiction is something that has to be done in a, in a darkened room, and for a lot of people it does. Lots and lots and lots of other things that are done in books, including narrative, actually, can be done in lots of in new and interesting ways through the internet. I mean, and on, you know, through other digital technologies. I mean, um, Tom takes very close interest in the way narrative can be used in video games, for instance, and weirdly that spills back. I don't know whether any of you are great fans of Dora the Explorer, um, which is a bizarre children's program which appears to be modelled on a computer game should occasionally ask the audience something on telly. You know, should I go to the mountain or to the river? And a little cursor will appear and go, click, and you go, thank you. And, you know, it's a bizarre recursion that's going on. Um, likewise, the internet gives us the opportunity to, to basically make choose-your-own-adventure books all over again. Um, so there's, there's lots of hope as well. And can I now um, invite, we've got a couple of rubbing mics, I think, some uh, questions uh, from the audience, if you, if you wave your hands, I'll maybe try and take a couple at a time. Um, the lady at the front there. And... This is mostly, this is mostly for Lionel, but other um, answers are welcome. Um, one of the biggest concerns, obviously, seems to be how do writers get paid. Um, and um, I'd just like some clarification, basically, Lionel, and your thoughts on publishers and the role that they've played thus far and might play in the future. Um, uh, you seem to say that they 
as you say, do a good job of going through the slush pile, but I question that, having heard um, and knowing how hard it is for um, writers who are wonderful to get published in the first place, as you said. Mm -hmm. So whether, and obviously publishers wanting to make money, as you said, and so maybe uh, hitching their carts to what they know will be those most popular on Amazon.com anyways. So have they been doing that job? And if they and if they have or haven't, I guess going forward, can you imagine or do you see hope for um, something else online, like I guess we've already been discussing, that will will do that instead and um, yeah, take that place? Thank you. Um, so we'll, 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 we'll ask two, then I'll put them both at the panel. So oh, hi. Um, Rightly or wrongly, we tend to make assumptions about others by what they're reading. So if you're reading a particular book, I draw my own conclusions. So if you're reading The Economist rather than Hello magazine, I make my own money. That's what I'm getting at. But at the moment, electronic reading is anonymous. If you're reading something on Kindle or iPad, I don't know what you're reading. So that's really interesting. I was also thinking perhaps sooner or later, book signing might become obsolete I mean, unless you sign on the iPad. But all joking apart, I was really fascinated by uh, Sam's beginning narrative about this YouTube trailer. Now, that could fundamentally change and shape the current relationship between the author and the reader. And to my mind, if you just completely sort of think outside the box, there's no reason why, as this goes further, we could have a fully multimedia book where you might even be asked to choose the soundtrack to go along with the text, you know, embedded videos, things like that, on these devices, which you can do at the moment. How would that shape or impact upon the way you might write for future audiences? Thank you very much. So we'll, we'll take the first question first. What I think almost in a nutshell was saying, we've talked about publishers being important for you know, getting authors' money, but given their commercial habits, how can we trust them to do a good job as much as anything else? Clearly, they don't always do a good job. And uh, I've had plenty of personal experience of, of being rejected over and over again um, by traditional publishers. So I, I find it almost hilarious in, in retrospect that I should be sticking up for them. <laughs> um, and I, I do... Are you a writer? Um, I, I do think it makes sense to view uh, the internet as another opportunity uh, and a way of saying, well, screw you, I don't need you. So I think that maybe that should be a second resort instead of the first, but um, publishers aren't always right. And they miss a lot. And they promote a lot of rubbish. Uh, but what concerns me on your account about the current situation, and that is the, the squeeze I was talking about between this, the e-book e situation and, and, and Amazon trying to push the, the price of books, e-books as low as possible, uh, that is in w what is to publishers below cost. And then at the same time, these ludicrous discount situations uh, where nobody's making any money, including the author. That makes these companies only more conservative, only keener to just go for the sure bet, the, uh, the writers they've already got that they can promote and, and which will, who will effectively promote themselves to go for the cheesiest and most obvious products. It's not going to make the industry 
more experimental, more open to new writers. And it, it, there's a more of a, a batten down the hatches thing going on right now. Now I happen to be lucky because I'm on the I'm I, I'm on the right side of the hatch, right? And and so of course I believe in traditional publishing, um, but I don't like the conservatism that that I I see that, that this situation creates. It makes these companies much more closed. Would you like to talk to that one? I was um, really interested in the anonymous oh, question. Uh, well, I'll, yes. I'll, uh, an anonymity question. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll rephrase that question quickly just, just, just for the room in, in that case, which is several things we haven't really touched on, which is, um, is a very nice note that you can't tell what someone's reading, so how do you know what to think of them by their anonymous book? Um, and we've all had that problem, I think. And also, uh, leading into the second part of the question, I you talked the first part, which was something we haven't talked about yet, which is the idea of fully multimedia, all singing, all dancing books, and where will that end? But anonymity first, Nigel. No, my dad used to read um, dodgy paperbacks on the train to work, and he had this plastic cover that produced the, the anonymous um, e-book equivalent. Um, so it's, we've been there before. You could buy a, a little plastic penguin cover. Um, I think it was penguin, anyway. Um, I think that it's a really interesting question and it's come up with music as well. I'm of the generation where it mattered which LPs you left lying on the coffee table when you invited somebody around. And we're beyond that now. You know, people have got a private experience of listening to music often and there's no physical trace of, of the things that are on your iPod unless you bought CDs. Um, and so we're there with music and I think we'll be there soon with books. And it is something that we lose. And I, I think the result with music is that people have found alternative ways of displaying their taste through celebrity playlists and so on. And there is actually a genre in writing on weblogs and newspapers and so on where celebrities tell you their favourite books in a particular area. And, that, and that's grown as the e-book's grown, interestingly. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that, that, I mean, I think the, as a quick footnote to that remark, it only really applies when you're trying to be nosy about people on public transport. Um, I mean, you can normally just ask people what book they're reading if you're in a sort of social situation. Um, I, though I agree, I mean, I share the grief because I'm nosy about people on public transport. Um, the business of multimedia books and this weird thing with the trailer, which, as I say, sort of, you know, seemed bizarre to me, um, I think there is a point that as this paraphernalia grows around, the book, in a way it kind of, it starts to steer interpretation. I mean, bizarrely, the trailer you mentioned, the script I saw, which was much more exciting than the actual book, I was like, this is, this is much better, I wish this guy had written the book. Um, for instance, there's a character in the book whose sex is indeterminate, or is not told to you, and it had male hand reaches across. I thought, should I, should I object to this, or should I just go, well, that's, that's what the trailer says. But the multimedia books, the soundtracks, they... Um, Nick Cave's novel, first novel, I think it's his, No, it's not his first novel, it's his second, third novel, um, called The the Death of Bunny Monroe, I think it was called? Yeah. Something of Bunny Monroe, anyway. Um, was published a guy called Peter Collingwood, who's got a setup company called Enhanced Editions, which publishes to the um, iPhone. I mean, this was a couple of years ago this came out, and they did one of... I mean, Canongate did it and was very, you know, Jamie Bings's... Gate publisher is very in love with sort of, you know, what's what's the next wave, what's the cutting edge, and they cooked up this multimedia book of Bunny Munro, which sold through the ice, 
to the store, and it had a soundtrack um, composed by Warren Ellis, not the comics writer, but the guy in the Bad Seeds. Um, and it did all sorts of really cool things that you could, it would read as an audiobook, um, and then you could, you say, turn it on as an audiobook, and then you go, I'd like to read it now. And it would go instantly and find you your place. And you could just carry on reading, and you could put a soundtrack on, you could turn it off, you could do little bits of video, and all of that stuff. So it's already sort of, you know, it's kind of already here. Whether or not that sort of depth of, you know, crunchy extra stuff becomes standard or is what people start to demand from from their books, I think is, you know, whether they want to pay for it is, is, is still an open question. But I think that did all right. Well, some books work better in that, those apps, don't they? I mean, the Jamie Oliver's 30-minute recipes, you get a picture of what you're going to get, you get a, a recipe, you get, you, if you don't know how to chop an onion, you can watch a video of him chopping an onion. It gives you a shopping list, it tells you which aisle in which supermarket the, the ingredients are kept in. I mean, yeah. that's much better than having a book, and it, you can put it in your pocket. So yeah. It seems to me that just on this, when it gets to the point where you're no longer talking about books in the sense that you have you get a writer and you get a good writer to do good writing, you hope, but then if you really want to have good multimedia stuff, you have to then get a good video director or a good programmer or a good coder to do good other content. I, I write for video games sometimes, um, which is I think, quite a nascent art form as far as writing goes, but um, if something's going to be good, you tend to work on the principle that you hope that you're doing good writing, but you certainly hope that there are lots of other people who are very good at their separate jobs because you know, there's, there's no good having something that looks nice and has a dreadful script if you, if you, want, it to, if you want to try and think of it as a good written product. Um, do you have any or should we get some Well, I mean, this is all going the same direction, which means that if, if, we, if writers want to, they can start blurring the distinction between uh, the novel and the film. Right, so we can start making our own little movies, and uh, I see no reason why that couldn't be fun, and uh, as long as it doesn't knock out the traditional book, if for people who are just not into that, uh, I think I think that sounds like uh, a ball. <laughs> can we take um, a couple more questions from the audience, please? Um, so that and. Um, on, on the right there as well. If we, if we take both quite a few, if you, I'll then kind of summarise them briefly and put them to the panel. Hi. Um, <clears throat> I'm uh, listening to all this as an academic publisher um, <laughs> with an interest in philosophy, and um, it's striking... And an author. Uh, and maybe the majority of my time as, an, as a publisher, minority as a writer, but um, the... We, we in academic publishing are spending a lot of time trying to understand what is going to happen and B, is it going to be a good thing or otherwise. It's not one thing, clearly. There's going to be a, a mixed economy. Um, we publish academic journals which have been purely online for at least a decade. Reference publishing has almost um, entirely transformed itself. You, you, wouldn't read, you wouldn't buy 24 volumes of the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, and similarly, if you want something kind of low-level reference, you'll get it for free off Wikipedia. You're not going to worry about authority if all you want is just facts and information. Different kinds of readers then have different kinds of needs. We're particularly interested in what students are doing. Uh, just you know, a couple of nuggets, actually, in terms of trends generally. Um, Amazon announced that sales of e-books have outstripped sales of paperback books just recently. But what doesn't get as much headline attention is that the Paperback sales are actually up year on year within that. So it's not like there's a displacement thing. Yes, e-books are on the rise, 
But it's not necessarily the case that the paperback will vanish. And um, when you look at, and I'm sure a lot of people in this room are students, and a lot of academics are trying to del deliver high-value um, sort of additional electronic interactive textbooks and so on, we're finding it's massively rejected by the student body on the whole. Um, when Princeton University gave out um, Kindles to everyone, they kind of sent it all back. Um, and what we're noticing is that um, no one seems to have solved the problem about how, how students might actually um, read electronically to actually learn what they're, you know, what they're trying to do for their subject. And the, I suppose the, um, and, and another nugget on that is that when we published an interactive criminology textbook, we found that it's increased the sales of the print threefold, um, even though it was quite an exciting and jazzy thing for the uh, adopters to look at. I'd ask Nigel a specific question related to this, which is that, yes, while philosophy has always been something which has been based and grounded in dialogue, isn't it the case, ultimately, that if you really want to learn something, you're going to have to go beyond philosophy bites, you're going to actually have to kind of pull off the big book from the, off the shelf and really spend some devoted, isolated time to really internalizing it? And is that not one of the reasons why a conversation isn't enough? I think we'll, we'll, we'll take that question now, I think, before... Okay, before very quickly, yeah. it depends what you want to learn. This is, this is <laughs> <laughs> and what, the, you know, I'm, I challenge anybody to internalize being in time and I wouldn't recommend it. Um, if you want to know um, what Kant said about morality, you can get an overview. You'd like it's useful to have a map before you enter that thicket, um, that forest. Uh, but, but at some point, if you, if you really want to know what he said, you're going to engage with the book because that's the trace that he left. Had he recorded his lectures in Konigsberg, that would have been incredible. Um, and probably much more interesting to philosophers than what he wrote because of the tangled way that he wrote. So uh, there's nothing, I don't think there's, it's obvious that writing is the only way in which high level philosophy can be communicated. Otherwise, all those seminars and um, conferences are just a, a scam. Well, maybe they are. <laughs> um, if you've read Small World, you know. Uh, can we, uh, we, we might come back to touch on those, those points, but can we take our, our other question, please? It's a little comment that I'd like to turn into a question. They, just about today, just about everybody is a publisher. I mean, in the last 15 days with uh, what happened in Cairo, uh, there's been more published and there's been more very, very effective publishing going on than, than I would say all of the, the, the standard publishing. My comment on the publishing, and I would like to turn it into a question, is that actually in, in a kind of a reverse Google sort of way, publishing should be more today about um, creating preference, which is what it's supposed to be doing in the first place, I think, in the marketplace. We haven't, haven't mentioned the word marketing in the whole discussion. And a publisher's prime function is, is, uh, is creating that preference and doing the marketing. Marketing has become, when everybody's publishing, has, be, has become a distribution problem. So therefore you have this, this incredible miasma, the, the thing that is very frightening to those people who are in rooms on their own making the content. Uh, publishing is very ineffective in that way, but at the same time there's this huge publishing explosion. Now, there is a terrible disconnect here. I mean, publishers in, like I said, reverse Googling, if there is such a concept, have to get involved in creating that preference and finding the primary job 
finding those people that should know about that book or should know about that piece of writing. So, in that question, I'm just I'm just suggesting that maybe you have an answer to that if there's an implicit question in there. Well, if I put that to the panel, I, I think in summary we're saying there that we haven't talked about marketing yet and that the huge challenge that publishers a lot of conventional publishers are not living up to at all is to find the people who ought to be reading something and to take to them the message first of all that they ought to be reading it to make them aware to create a preference for for the thing that they need to read um, seems to me that many publishers use a machine gun where they could use a sniper rifle and if they picked out and had confidence in some of their choices and published fewer authors that would probably achieve the, the kind of end that you're talking about but probably economically it's a safer bet to take 20 and see which one sells Oh, I can certainly say that my publisher uh, is, does make an effort to market the book uh, via the new media. Unfortunately, I mean, I just got the um, promotion plan for my paperback coming out in March, and it's all sending it to a bunch of bloggers. Well, that seems all very modern, but when I decode that is, oh, I see, you're not going to buy any advertising. So <laughs> what, one of the things that, that traditional publishers have started to use the new media for is to get out of their traditional obligations because it's cheap. I think I'd only add this, I think the, this question of using a machine gun rather than a sniper rifle, Again, I suspect we're in some sort of, as I said, of the, the business of these generation, the generation of writers who are established and sell themselves. We're still in a, you know, churny, in between place, and there must be something, and this is the only thing I can think of that accounts for the fact that many, 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 many more books seem to be being, you know, year on year, people are still publishing more and more, more and more books, and yet, you know, we have these various metrics telling us that. You know, it's less and less profitable to do so, that it's harder. So, and I think maybe publishers are at the moment in a sort of convulsion of thinking our traditional business models aren't working, so what we have to do is simply throw tons at the wall and see what happens. I and mean, I think that may be what happened. I mean, in the last few years, there did seem to be a great glut of first novels, and I think maybe what they did, again, my guess is that it's at the expense of mid-list authors. The publishers thought, OK, we've got the top end who are selling a lot, and we know they'll promote themselves. We used to have, every year, we'd take on one or two new writers who we thought were going to work, and then we'd have our mid-list who we'd you know, pay whatever and expect them to sell not so much. Then they thought, all right, let's, the mid-list, you know, it's essentially do what a lot of businesses now do. You have a lot of senior management, and you used to have a whole set of tiers below them. And they then think, shit, our business model's broken, right, we'll fire all these people because they're expensive and get lots of work experience people in. And I think maybe what we're having is publishers are now going, right, first novelists, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm grateful, I'm a beneficiary. Um, they don't cost much. Let's just get 20 of them and see whether one of them wins the Booker Prize. Um, and I suspect that that, that again, is a, is a shape of the publishing business that will shake out over time. I just think it's, it's a weird interstitial time. 
I think we've got time for, uh, for one more question before I ask the um, authors to sum up, or two if people can be uh, very pithy. Um, so in the middle there, and uh, the lady on my right at the back. Uh, Nigel put this question to us uh, earlier about the uh, open world versus the, the uh, protected world model. And it, it seems to me as if the best way to conceive of the, the open world model which we're, we're looking for with the internet is as a, a public good. Uh, a society which has ideas, which are flowing freely, which are being challenged, is a, a public good. And yet the, the challenge of the writer seems to be, or the, the writer's challenge is, to attempt to find a private funding model. Surely the question should be, uh, how do we make a public funding model for uh, defending a public good? Perfect. And can we take our other question as well from the, the lady at the back there? Hi. Um, it's all well and good in this part of the world where there's technology and the internet is super fast and you can download a book in seconds. But there are parts of the world where they still haven't got the internet, you know, and sometimes I've been on holiday in places where you're trying to view a YouTube video, for example, and it takes you about two hours to stream a five-minute video. So um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on those parts of the world where technology isn't quite up to the standard where we can download books. How do you think that will widen the gap in the sort of experience of the reader? Thank you. So we've got two, two quick questions to end on. One, should we be looking for a public funding model rather than private funding model for something that is a public good? And one, technological inequality across the world. Does, does that mean that it's going to be an area, I suppose, of, of increased divisiveness and increased inequality as, as we have more and more taking, taking place in, in the digital space? On the public... Yeah. Funny model. Didn't the Irish try that with the tax um, breaks for artists and writers? I think that's been stopped now. But uh, yeah. um, it's very hard to persuade governments that they should be funding writers in that way. I mean, you know, the writer's wage or something like that. Um, so I suspect it would only be a top-up. And there has been that um, under threat again, you know, with the public lending right, for instance, uh, with the... With the um, the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society distributes money that um, is certainly... It, 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 they, they collect money for secondary rights uses for photocopying and so on but, of, of, of books, but that's something that's, that's condoned by government, but it's, it's not facilitated particularly by government. So I, don't, I still don't think that model is going to work. I do agree, though, that it's, it's, it's a conflict between a notion of the common good and some sort of sense of the writers need to survive but the writers who advocate this are not just greedy writers they're people who think that it's a good thing that writers exist in our society and they don't see a way that they can exist unless there is some potential to earn a living wage from doing that you know, from being a professional writer so it's not that they're just selfish it's some of them are, some of them want big houses and swimming pools and things, but some of them just want there to be writers in the world and they don't think there will be good writers unless they can get sufficient recompense from writing. I actually um, think that there are lots of other ways that people can make money personally who are writers. So it's like the music model, you go on tour or whatever. There are things that writers do which will earn them probably more money than writing these days. 
So I, I, I'm, I don't right. think we've got time for a, for a, for a dialogue. Just writers are as undervalued as, say, volunteers are. So it's not simply a problem that we undervalue writers. It's a problem that we undervalue quite a lot of things that we ought to value far more. Sir? No, I agree. I would love to find a public funding model. It's hard to see what it would be. But as somebody who's quite keen on intellectual property rights and the idea of copyright, even though that is itself a relative historical innovation and maybe it was a blip. Um, I mean, I love, above all things, the British Library, and I can't quite square my enthusiasm for, you know, everyone should pay to read books with the fact that I will go to the British Library for free and read anyone's book I want. And if Google can make the British Library a global, you know, can become a kind of global international copyright library, that surely has to be a public good of extraordinary value. Um, but I'm with Nigel, there has to be a way of somehow funding writers, and I don't think it's enough to say. I mean, I, use, I think poets, as um, Nigel pointed out quickly, were a bad example, actually, because poets don't make money anyway. Um, but I don't think the, oh, it'll be fine, everyone will just go on lecture tours um, sort of model of planning for the future will quite work out. Did you I just, you know, we do have a public funding model in a tiny little way, which is the library, and I think, uh, I think that's a fine institution. I certainly don't want to be on the public payroll myself. Uh, I, I would rather succeed in commercial terms, and uh, I do think that, that that said, that defending the public library is very important. I, I realize that everybody wants to ring fence their own special thing in the recent budget cuts, but I think that we get more than our money's worth out of libraries. And this move to close hundreds of them across the country strikes me as spiteful because they don't take that much money in comparison to a lot of other uh, institutions and people and practices in this, in this government. And I think there may even be an element of some councils saying, look what you're making us do, because they know it matters to people. They're choosing those, those libraries because it matters to people. And it's a kind of showy, um, you can't have your nice things anymore. These things are bad. <laughs> and I, I just, and, and there's, and, and in that attitude, there's no recognition for how, how permanent that is. Because it's easy to close a library. It's really hard to open one. And, and uh, the, the loss is, is hugely more than just the, the staff salaries. You have made this long-term investment into a whole collection uh, and, and, and into expanding technologies. I've been very impressed by the way libraries in this country have uh, remained current uh, technologically and expanded what, what they offer. And uh, th I just think that that's the, that's the one thing that government does for writers and for readers. Uh, and, and, and these days, consumers of many other technologies as well. And that's really where we should draw the line. They don't cost that much money. Um, 
Fine, just, just before we, we do our summings up, do, does anyone have any, any thoughts on technological inequality? Um, that last question on the, on the, on the, the divisiveness of technology. Um, I oh, just uh, there are lots of creative ways that people get around the sorts of problems that you mentioned. Um, I mean, there are, as I understand it, in many of the countries you're, you're alluding to, people do have good phone networks. And there are different ways in which people are delivering things online. Presumably that's going to change. The speeds will change. If not, your worst-case scenario is true. You know, there's going to be a growing gap between those who can get access to information and those who can't. I've read that the, um, some countries are really benefiting from having been technologically behind. It's a little bit like what happened after World War II. And you know all Germany's factories were bombed, and so they got rebuilt with the the most up-to-date technology available, and which is one reason we have the Germany we have today. Um, there are some phone networks in Africa that are that, that give you a much better signal than you can get in London, and that's because uh, these things have come late, and therefore they're they're really up-to-date. And so I've, that's the most optimistic spin I can put. I think that's right. The, the whole development of wireless telephony in sub-Saharan Africa is, you know, with 3G networks. Yeah, they're getting is the best the cable. Huge driver for the economy, but and you know, it's. I mean, obviously, it's not. You know, it's it's a slow process, but I don't think the division is profoundly accelerated by, you know, e-books developing in the West, um, and in fact, also. You know, YouTube clips. I mean, people won't be able to see the trailers, but they will be able to download the books. Um, on the grounds that it's, you know, text actually is is much easier to transmit than, as I understand it, hmm. than you know, if you a bare text file will go into your phone much much faster. You know, you can download Jane Eyre much faster than you can download Five Minutes of Dora the Explorer, and you'd be better off doing so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, I was going to uh, just ask for. A a few summing up thoughts on the panel. Do you want to go in the opposite all of you spoken at start, start sure. with start with We haven't talked very much about uh, social networks, which are certainly a big part of this media explosion. And uh, I know that I'm fusty. I am not on Facebook. I don't tweet, if only that, um, that I can't bring myself to say that word <laughs> <laughs> several times a day. Um, I realize that, that on a larger social level, we've all got a new toy and everybody wants to play with it, but I anticipate not too long from now at least a, a proportion of, of people who finally discover they have better things to do retreating from these, uh, from these sites. I, I really do not understand where people find the time to do all this Facebook and Twitter and uh, and and also email and text and I, I mean I just what else are they doing? Although it does explain why if you just walk down the footpath these days, you you run into people literally because they're just like this. Um, I. I am, I am a big defender and believer in uh, traditional privacy. And I think that's something that we may start valuing more and more. All these young people who've put 
you know, naked pictures of themselves <laughs> out on the web are, are going to regret it. And I think that's something we're increasingly going to have to learn to do is defend ourselves against other people instead of constantly inviting them into our life. And in, in my profession, uh, much as I you know, am a professional communicator, I have got to the point where I think this consciousness of audience, the press of other people watching, and, all, and, and, and constantly uh, the, the pressure to continually communicate with your audience is negative because it's, it's, it means that you're being driven by a desire to please. And, and that may not mean that you're, you're communicating what you really want to. You're not really suiting yourself. You don't have the solitude and the presence of mind to consider what, what one thing you really uh, want to communicate to other people, whether or not they want to hear it, and it may not be 149 characters. Uh, um, very briefly, something that came up earlier, the idea that giving things away leads people to devalue them. I don't think that's true in every case. I wouldn't want to generalize from condoms to books to everything else. I thought that was my a fun own, analogy. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> analogy. It's interesting, but I, my own experience is very different. The more I give stuff away, the more people buy, buy my books. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, and I think a lot of people have had that experience. The, the dynamics of the gift are really complex, and it depends what you're giving. It depe depends on the context of giving. And sometimes charging a small amount actually alienates people and irritates them where they're very pleased to receive a gift and incredibly grateful and will send you money in a tip jar as a result. Yeah, I, well, I started out, I, I realised as I reached the end of my initial talk, sounding like I was incredibly negative. I thought, oh, God, I've just basically... Actually, I'm very optimistic. Um, I think that the... You know, as we've described... Many of the you know psychological and cultural mechanisms that have driven the you know the way that from the beginning of print to now you know the whole development of that those mechanisms are still in place they're still identical um, or near as damn it identical if there are any cultural theorists I hear um, I think the point is at the moment we are in a state of such novelty and of such transition that it's pretty much impossible to know exactly how things are going to shake out. Um, you know, in the same way that, you know, when people first invented the microwave, they thought that this was going to be the solution to all cooking problems. And what tends to happen is you invent something and you think it's the solution for everything. You know, you're the person with the hammer and everything looks like a nail. And we've got all these technologies. We're trying to use them in ways that, you know, we'll find out what they work for. We just haven't yet. Um, and I think it's going to be very, very interesting just to wait and see. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. So on behalf of uh, myself and Prospect, and the LSE, would you, would you please join me in thanking our panellists, Lana Schreiber.